request in there uh, and that you'll be able to participate in some of our remaining sessions. Uh, we also want to remind you, as we did in second service this um, morning, we neglected to do that at first service, is to begin writing on your list of things you're thankful for. As we celebrate this time of the year, it's always good you can begin by writing down ten things and then the next day write down ten other things and the next day ten other things and before you know it you'll have a list of a hundred things uh, for which you're thankful. And that's always exciting to share and I know many of us over the years have grown a great deal from looking at the list of God's blessings. As we've been going through our fall focus, it's been so encouraging to see on our, in our Sunday morning Bible classes the participation, the enthusiasm. This morning's topic was probably one of uh, the most difficult that we've tackled in a Bible class setting. How did we get the Bible? And what's very exciting is an opportunity we'll have next week. Brad Willits is going to be with us. Brad Willits is a uh, longtime missionary. And uh, he has specialized in translating the Bible into native tongues that don't have a translation of the Bible available to them. And so he will go to a place and then learn the dialect and then be able to translate God's word in that dialect. And it's amazing ministry. And he's going to be here. And so next week, we thought it would be good for our fall focus if all of our adult classes came in the auditorium and Brad shared with us. And hopefully we'll be able to have Brad share with us some on the topic of how we got the Bible. This is a, a field to which he's very familiar. One of the things we want to do uh, is we know there's a lot of questions that have been generated by their classes this morning. Maybe some questions that will be generated tonight. If you would, jot down some of those questions on your attendance card and pass those in. And uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll put those before Brad as he comes to speak to us. He might have the opportunity to hit on some of those. If not, we'll find different formats where we can answer those questions. Uh, but it's exciting to study God's Word. It's exciting to study how we received God's Word. And that's where we're going to begin this evening. As we think about specific passages of Scripture, you may want to open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, but we'll be going around in several places in Scripture. It, it's good to know what the Bible says about the Bible. But we also need to look at what history would say about God's Word. Vladimir Salukin, who was a poet and essayist that lived in Russia. In fact, he was an avid member of the Communist Party, so that gives you a sense of his perspective. But even he made this quote that I thought was interesting. He said, There's no doubt for every reasonable person that a supreme reason exists in universe and life. In other words, there's a supreme being or creator. The question is not whether a supreme reason exists, but whether it knows about me and has anything to do with me. Sunday morning, we spent time in class and in David's powerful message talking about the existence of God. Well, the next logical question is, if God exists, does God want anything to do with me? And if so, how would I know that? How would I be able to tell what God has planned for me and planned for my life. And we would naturally look to the Bible, God's Word. We would say, well, here's how we know that this is God's Word, this is His plan for us. Have you ever wondered how we got the Bible? And even more than that, why we can trust the Bible? Here is a book that has remained a bestseller over years and years and years. If I were to ask you to name the best-selling book of last year, 
That, a few of us might get that question right. We might have seen it in bookstores on displays or read it in the New York Times bestseller list. What about five years ago? What about ten years ago? The Bible has consistently been a best-selling book. At last count, it was, it was translated into a language uh, that could be understood by 95% of the world. Now, the area in which Brad is working are those percent in the world that don't have a written language, and he's getting that word to them. So we've got a long ways to go to make sure everyone can read the Bible. But think about how many translations are out there, available for people to read. Think about the fact that elected officials, when swearing an oath of office, are are, are presidents that would come in for their oath of office, will put their hand on a Bible. Think of the impact the Bible has had on our culture. When the master painters in the Renaissance era wanted to, to paint pictures, they often chose biblical subjects. The Bible's had a profound influence. And so it would be good for us to ask why we can trust it. And I think we need to be aware of the fact that many of our friends around us are going to ask us this question. You live your life based on the Bible. Well, why is it you trust the Bible? What's so special about this writing that would allow you to put your trust in it? And that's not a bad question to ask. Sometimes I think we're afraid to go down that road maybe in a conversation. We're afraid to entertain those questions. And tonight we're going to look at some tools that we can use in answering uh, those sorts of questions. It's good when people come to us asking us about the Bible. That is a prime opportunity. And here are some things that we can share. We'll be looking at various passages in God's Word, but we'll also be looking at some historical facts that I think will be interesting and helpful for us this evening. So it'll be a little bit different as we think through what makes the Bible trustworthy. The first thing I'd like for us to consider is the unique nature of the Bible. There is no other book that has impacted our society quite like the Bible. Now, we don't have to look far to find areas of our society that are turning away from biblical teaching, but overall, down through the decades and the centuries, the Bible has had a profound impact on the world. We're reminded of that passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. He's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, when he says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The word of the Lord has endured throughout the centuries, and it's not been without persecution. There have been times in our history when Bibles were chained to pulpits in the church, and it wasn't the privilege of just anyone to be able to read God's word. There have been times in our history when those who wanted to translate God's word were penalized even by death. The Bible has survived this persecution and continues to exert such a powerful influence. Here are some ways that we see the Bible as unique. One of those I would ask you to consider is the unity of the Bible. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible was written over a period of approximately 1,500 to 1,600 years. Now, that's a long time span for any work of of literature to be written. Not only that, but you've got this long time span, and it was written by over 40 different authors in different places and times. And not only do you have authors coming from different settings, you have some authors who are kings, heads of state, some who are peasants, some who are fishermen, 
some who are poets, some who are warriors. You have all of these different personalities that have come together uh, to pen books that are included in God's word. And yet you still have that unity. It was written on actually three different continents. We might not stop and think about that very much. But there are three different continents on which the Bible was written. When we think of the writings of Ezekiel that we'll talk about in just a moment, talking about uh, his prophecies being written in Babylon, in Asia. When we think about the books of Moses being written in Sinai, in Africa, or even in Europe where Paul writes while in Rome books. And so we have books written from three different continents in three different languages. The Bible obviously was not written initially in English. The Old Testament contains mostly Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and the New Testament contains Koine Greek. So you have three different continents and also three different languages coming together. And still there's unity. And here's one that's interesting that we might not think about very often. It deals with some controversial subjects. What if I were to stand before you today at the beginning of college basketball season and tell you that the University of Memphis is by far the best college basketball team in the United States of America. Do you think that everyone in this room would agree with that? Several of you would probably point to a time when another team that many cheer for here beat University of Memphis last year. Uh, I, might, I might get uh, shown the national rankings. They don't, they don't quite rank quite as high because most others would have a team in here that you think is the best team. You think is going to win the national championship. Anytime you bring up your favorite team, you're dealing with a controversial topic. And there are going to be all sorts of opinions out there. Can you imagine all the controversial topics written about in the Bible? All the controversial things that are brought up. Actions that people took. Sins that people committed. Things that people did. And you have all these different authors dealing with the same controversial subjects and they're quoting each other. The New Testament writers will quote the Old Testament writers. There's still that unity. I would imagine it would be difficult for 40 of us, uh, picture your Sunday morning or or Wednesday evening Bible class. That might be a better uh, sample size of 40 people. Can you imagine a controversial topic where every person in that room would agree 100%? It would be a challenge to find that, wouldn't it? Now imagine agreeing with all sorts of controversial issues. And so we have all of these things taking place, and yet the Bible still maintains its unity. The thread of redemption runs from the very beginning of Scripture. In Genesis, when we have the the garden and the, the tree there in Genesis, all the way to Revelation, when we see the spiritual imagery of that tree revisited. And we have redemption running all throughout. Jesus' sacrifice for all of us. The Bible is unique in its unity. If you were to uncover different building materials that had obviously been made in different times, made of even different kinds of materials that were buried in different places, and you put them all together and they formed a physically sound structure, you would begin to think that there was some design there. The same is true when we put together the Bible. When you take all of these different writings and put them together in God's word, there's some structure there. God's hand is at work in the unity of God's word. That's one aspect that really makes it unique. There's also an interesting aspect of that uniqueness that's found in the unity of of those who followed God, especially in the unity of Jesus' followers. This, I think, is one of the most interesting aspects of biblical history. 
When we look throughout what secular history tells us, Jesus' followers encountered some of the worst persecution imaginable. They were put to death by some of the most torturous means available. And yet they were all willing to die for their belief in Jesus. Now you may say, well, there are a lot of people willing to die for a cause they believe in. We don't have to think too far back in our country's history to think of those who are willing to sacrifice their lives for a cause that they believed in 100% in terrorist attacks. And we would look at that and say, whoa, wait a minute. We don't need to be advocating belief in just anything. And so you've got all these apostles who believed in something and were willing to sacrifice their lives. Here's a key difference. When we look throughout history, there are people who are willing to sacrifice their lives for something they believe in. But we don't find people willing to sacrifice their lives for something they know to be a lie. Something they know to be false. Just think about that for a moment. Liars don't make very good martyrs. Because when push comes to shove and they're going to lose their life, if it's something that they've made up, if it's a scheme or if it's a lie, eventually, when your life's on the line, you're going to admit, okay, we made it up. Okay, this, this isn't something that's real. Now, if the apostles had gotten together and concocted a scheme to promote Jesus as the Son of God, do you really think that so many people would have sacrificed their lives for something that wasn't true? You have this incredible unity of Jesus' followers that believe in his resurrection. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the evidences of his resurrection in just a few moments. But just... Just think about that for a moment. I I really like a quote that Chuck Colson gives. And you may remember Chuck Colson. He's written a lot of books since this time. But he was involved in the Watergate scandal under the Nixon administration. And he made this quote when talking about his experiences in Watergate. He said, here we were, the 12 most powerful men in all the United States. All the power of government was at our fingertips. But we could not keep a lie together for three weeks. They couldn't keep a cover together for three weeks. They weren't being threatened with death, with persecution. But it shows us how difficult it is for such a large group of people to try to keep together a lie and keep together a cover-up. At some point, someone is going to admit that it's not true. And when we look through church history, we see Christian after Christian willing to give his or her life based on faith that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So you have this unity of followers that doesn't just exist in the writing of the Bible, but those who followed the words of the Bible. It's also unique in the fact that it's endured for so long. That reminds us of those words we read from Peter that the grass and the flowers may fade, the word of the Lord endures forever. This has to be one of my favorite quotes of all time. Pictured here is French philosopher Voltaire, an opponent of Christianity. He made this statement that is probably one of the most ironic we'll read in history. He said, within 100 years, Christianity will be swept away from existence and pass into the obscurity of history. Just last week, David read for us a quote from a a current author, Christopher Hitchens, that said, belief in God and religion belongs to the infancy of our species. In other words, it's not going to be around for very long. It's not going to last for very long. Voltaire was convinced of that. He thought it would only take 100 years. What's interesting, in half that time, in 50 years, the Geneva Bible Society had purchased his house and used his house and his printing press to produce copies of the Bible that were spread all over the world. 
Now, isn't that ironic that someone was so adamant in the fact that Christianity was swept away from history, had his house and his printing press used to produce Bibles? It's amazing to see how God's word continues to endure, no matter what anyone might say. So it has these unique qualities about it, qualities we can't find in any other book. As we continue to to think through what makes the Bible trustworthy, we come to a second category, which would be manuscript evidence. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the different manuscripts and, and how the practices were, and we'll try not to get too caught up in all those details. But as we think about the Old Testament, for example, we'll start there. The scribes who are copying the Old Testament, it is amazing to see what meticulous precision they were required to maintain when copying the Old Testament from one manuscript to the other. Now keep in mind, uh, they weren't typing on computers where you would be able to save work. Uh, they didn't have, there wasn't spell check. They weren't able to go through and edit things very easily. In fact, many of the skins and the materials they used to write with would fade very easily. And so what we have in the Old Testament is we have scribes that would sit down and there were so many just, just tiny little rules they had to observe. One of which was each letter. Each letter that they would write had to have exactly a hair's breadth between it and the next letter. And so you have them measuring out the letters very carefully. And they didn't write anything from memory. In other words, if we were to look at this screen and copy it down, you might be thinking, manuscript evidence, okay? Manuscript evidence. That's probably the way most of us would copy that. They would copy it M M A A N and go through letter by letter, counting each letter to make sure that at the end of a page, each letter had the same amount of letters that was in the copy that they had originally. Now imagine if you were working as a scribe and you would have to be in full formal dress because of respect for God's word. And you are working and you finally get to the very end of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66 chapters. You're getting towards the end of Isaiah. And you realize there's a mistake in chapter 60. Now, if we're making something on a Word document, we can just hit the little arrow button, go up, backspace, write whatever needs to be in there. If that happened, that entire manuscript was destroyed and you started all over from chapter 1, verse 1. That's how serious they were about making sure manuscripts were accurate. And so what happened as a result of that, uh, these skins they would write on, the materials they were using to write, would fade very easily. And so they kept making copies because if a copy faded, chances are there might be parts missing or there might be parts that were illegible. And if something was illegible, that means you could read it incorrectly. And they took that so seriously that when the manuscript got to where portions of it were illegible or weren't able to read... They would bury that. So if you've ever wondered why we don't have an original manuscript with Moses' handwriting, it's because they kept copying it with such precision and they were afraid of those old manuscripts getting around and and inaccurate information being there. Now you may wonder, well, how do we know that there's accuracy uh, when we think about copy after copy after copy? Interesting, just earlier in the 20th century when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, Uh, There were so many Old Testament fragments that were found contained uh, and they had had been sealed and so they were still able to read. 
And one scholar went through and compared a passage in Isaiah from the most current text we, we had then to these texts which were much older. And so this was a great way of seeing. There are hundreds of years in between. Let's see how accurate they were. And the only differences they could find were that there were a few words that were spelled differently because spelling had changed throughout the years. And there was one verse where the word light had been inserted and it had kind of been understood in the earlier passage. And that was about it. So we see how accurate that translation was to the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament. Now, by the time the New Testament is around, we're looking at an abundance of manuscripts because those manuscripts lasted longer. They were made from material that lasted longer. And it's interesting to see when we think about the New Testament to understand who the people were who would have the best understanding as to what was inspired. Like this passage Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. He says, For this reason we are also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also confirms its work in you who believe. In other words, Paul understood the message he was giving the Thessalonians wasn't his word, it was the word of God. And it was important for the original audience to understand that. They'd be in a much better position than we are to judge that. They knew that Paul was sharing inspired messages with them. Peter would write in 2 Peter 3 and verse 16 that there are some who would twist the scriptures and look who he includes in that. He includes Paul's writings in which he says some things are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable distort them, meaning Paul's writings, as they do the rest of scripture. So even Peter understood what Paul was writing was scripture. As we think about the abundance of manuscripts, I want to just, just ask a question. Just out of curiosity, and I don't know how many schools require this or or how many places you might have had to read this. How many of you at some point in, in high school or college had to read from the Iliad by Homer? Has anybody had to read that? If you just raise your hand, you've got to feel this. How many of you have, have heard of the Iliad by Homer? We've heard, we've heard of Homer and that sort of thing. Okay, when we think of going into an ancient world literature class and reading that, probably no one questioned the authenticity of that manuscript. It's because... We have the second highest amount of manuscripts supporting Homer, Homer's The Iliad that we do any other ancient writing. Second highest level. The first highest level are the New Testament manuscripts. Just to give us a visual of how many New Testament manuscripts we have, here's a little bar graph that helps us understand that. Here you've got the New Testament manuscripts that are just under 25,000. And then Homer's The Iliad, that's second place, and that's a few hundred. Now, chances are, there haven't been many people that you've heard that have questioned uh, the authenticity of whether this is really Homer's Iliad written through there. There may be some. But that question isn't nearly as popular as questioning the authenticity of the New Testament. Well, which do we have more manuscripts for? Uh, Bruce Metzger, who's a noted professor, said, when you study the New Testament, it's almost embarrassing how many manuscripts you have to be able to make your case. And so we have more manuscript evidence for the New Testament uh, than any other. And what's also important to think about is we have manuscript evidence that was written close to the time when these people lived. Picture the scene of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Was Peter stands up and he preaches the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. 
If you were an opponent of Christianity, the easiest thing in the world to do would be to go to the tomb and to find Jesus' body and to bring it out and to show everyone and to say, look, he doesn't know what he's talking about. No one did that. They get persecuted in later chapters in the book of Acts, but no one's able to produce the body of Jesus. Peter was speaking these these incredible words in a time when there were all sorts of people around who could say, that's not true. Well, the same is true when we think about the Gospels. Mark is probably the earliest gospel that was written. Chances are it was written only 20 or 30 years after the death of Christ. This is, this is something that would have taken place very close to the lifetime of Christ. Just imagine, let's use 30 years as a round number. Just imagine that I were to come before you and to say, do you remember 30 years ago? In 1978, I guess 78 will be 30 years ago. Do you remember in 1978 when there was, where, there was that teacher who came around? Remember he taught all those people and he brought people back from the dead? You're, it was right here. It was right here in Nashville. Remember he started bringing people back from the dead and, and they, had this big, they, they had this big thing going on. And after he brought, he brought people back from the dead and he healed sick people. And then all of a sudden they became so angry that they nailed him to a cross. And remember after that he came back to life? You remember how he came back to life 30 years ago? Now, if I were to stand up here and to say that, chances are, if not one, more than one of you would say, wait a minute, I, I, was, I was here 30 years ago. Maybe you didn't even live in, in Mount Juliet or in Nashville, but you were watching the news 30 years ago. You know that didn't happen. You know there's no way that 20 or 30 years ago something could take place. And you'd speak up and say so. We have the book of Mark circulating at such an early time, and yet no one stands up and says that's not true. Does that make sense how that could be such a a powerful evidence for the authenticity of the book of Mark? As we think about it, Mark's writing these things and there are people around who were alive who saw it. So if anybody was going to disagree, it would have been them. We have manuscripts in both Old and New Testament that are more than enough to let us know that these manuscripts are accurate. Sometimes we wonder why we don't have the original manuscripts, the, the original Old Testament or the original New Testament autograph manuscripts. I wonder sometimes if we had those, if we wouldn't be tempted to worship those, to worship an object, rather than to worship the God who inspired them. We have a tendency to worship objects as human beings. I wonder if that's not the case. Here's a couple more. Uh, For the sake of time, we'll go through a little more quickly. There's some archaeological evidence that helps us know that we can trust our Bible. For instance, a couple of years ago, as we think through what what Paul writes to Timothy, that all Scripture is inspired by God, using that phrase, God-breathed, profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, training, and righteousness. And so we see that all Scripture is inspired, even Scripture that tells us, about a man named Erastus. A couple of years ago on our Ukraine trip, a missionary in Athens that we support, Alexander Merilitos, took us on a tour of ancient Corinth. And he started us off here in a pavement that says, translated, constructed at the expense of Erastus when he was treasurer. Now you might think, well, that's insightful, that's exciting, but I don't know what relevance that would have to the Bible. Well, when we read through the book of Romans, Paul writes... The book of Romans uh, from Corinth, and he says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Paul is referring to someone that you could go to ancient Corinth today and you could see his name etched in stone as the city treasurer. 
Another one that's interesting to think about is a man named Sergius Paulus, mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and verse 7. For a long time, people would criticize Luke as a second-rate historian because he called in that verse Sergius Paulus a proconsul. And that's not a term that was used very often. And so they thought, well, Luke just must have been mistaken. He didn't understand who he was talking about. What's interesting is that years later, they found not only boundary stones like this one that have Sergius Paulus's name on them, they also found coins engraved with Sergius Paulus's name. And, and can you guess what his title was on those coins? Proconsul. Luke was right all along. We just didn't have enough information to know it. And so we have constant archaeological evidence pointing us to the unique nature of the Bible and the fact we can trust it. The last quality I want us to look at this evening is fulfilled prophecy. And as we do that, we'll share a couple of Old Testament prophecies. The writer of Hebrews would tell us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And God makes some very active, very bold prophecies. For instance, he prophesies against ancient Babylon through Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 17, he says, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them, meaning Babylon, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. And he goes on to talk about the destruction that will take place in Babylon. Babylon was a powerful city. The hanging gardens in Babylon were one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so, sure, someone might say Babylon could be destroyed someday. Someone might even be lucky enough to name the group or the nation that would destroy them, but that they wouldn't be inhabited in since then. And yet history has proved this prophecy correct as the Medes came in totally overthrew Babylon. Alexander the Great sought to rebuild it a few years later and then abandoned that idea. God's word proves true. There's also an Old Testament prophecy concerning ancient Tyre. And Tyre would have been another one of those cities that because of its seaport, because of its location by the sea and all of the trade that could have been brought in was very important. And yet we see Ezekiel say these words from the Lord. In Ezekiel 26 verse 3, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you. As the sea brings up its waves, they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. And I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nation. This powerful city would become a place where fishermen spread their nets. It would be so desolated that fishermen would have plenty of room to spread out their nets. And what happened is that they were under siege. Uh, They moved away to to an island. They were still attacked. Uh, There is a modern city that lays on top of the area of ancient Tyre, but that mainland area in Tyre is still a place that's flat, where if we went there today, we would find fishermen spreading their nets. There's fulfilled prophecy that lets us know we can trust our Bible. Uh, These are just a few of the ways we can think of. We're just touching the hem of the garment on this topic. And hopefully next week we can continue in this discussion. But as we think through this, we might come to the end of this study and wonder why this is so important. 
Why is it so important that we understand that we can trust the Bible? Have you ever received a letter from someone who mattered to you? Someone who was away on a long trip? An email where they had taken the time to find a place to email you and to send you a message? Isn't that meaningful? Doesn't it mean a lot when someone takes the time to give you a call or to send you a message? God, through his providence, guided men, inspired them that they would be able to write down his word, that it would be sustained. Not only that, but throughout events of history, God has guided his word so that today, in 2008, you and I can open his word and understand his message. That's how much he cares about getting his plan to us. That's the trouble that he has gone to to give us his message. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we trusted the Bible? Have we trusted God's word? God has has taken great pains to get us this word, working through all of these incredible ways that come together and culminate throughout Scripture. And now we have to ask ourselves, have we submitted ourselves to his scriptural design for life? Uh, To turning our lives over to him, to putting him on in baptism and walking that new life where we follow the one who preserved the word for us. If you need to make that decision tonight, if there's any way we can help you follow God's word, please come as we stand and sing together.